Okay, that's enough being friendly. Get your Bibles out. Uh, Matthew chapter 13, if you have a Bible with you, or maybe it's on a device that you have with you. The rest of you, I will assume you have it memorized. <laughs> you laugh. <laughs> um, you'll see it up on the screen as well. So maybe you've got a hard copy of the Bible or, or electronic device with you, or you want to follow along on the screen. If you don't own a Bible, we have free Bibles in the atrium. After the service, you can pick one up on that information table back there. I'd love for you to have a copy of God's Word in your hand. And it's free. You can pick one up. Um, we're in Matthew 13, and let me uh, do a little review with you before we jump into the actual parable we're doing this morning. But before we do that, I would love if you would pray with me first. Would you join me in that? Lord God, I thank you for the privilege we have right now of looking at your word and allowing you to speak. We have reason to rejoice as we just sang because of what you've done for us and it's, it's amplified again this morning through this parable that what you've, you've done is cause to not only celebrate but cause to stand in awe simply because of the explosive nature of it, how you have multiplied yourself over and over and over again and you will continue to do that. And God, I ask that you would use your word this week, this morning, to speak to individuals who may question their own ability to even represent you well. I pray, Father, for those who are struggling with even perhaps wearing your name in their own household, in their own family, if, let alone in the office or in, in the school or in their neighborhood, that you would give us reason to be encouraged this morning. We, we pray now as we turn our attention to what you caused Matthew to write down 2,000 years ago, that your Holy Spirit would now take this and, and teach us in such a way that it will change us this week. Some, Father, will be taken deeper in their walk with you. Some will come to a, a grip, a reality grip with who we are before you. Some of us will just come to terms with the reality that we need a Savior. In all those cases, be magnified, be glorified because of what you're about to do, and we know that you're going to do it because of a resurrected king who made a promise to us that he would send us a, a spirit, a Holy Spirit who's now in this place. So God, combine your word, combine the Holy Spirit, and illuminate it. We pray for this in the name of the one who died for us, the Lord Jesus Christ and all God's people said. If you haven't been here in the last couple of weeks, what Jesus is doing in these parables is he's using them to describe a very unique era of time. It's the era of time that you live in right now. He describes this period of time between his first and second coming. So in the big picture, Jesus has been giving indisputable evidence that he's the Messiah. Yet the nation of Israel has kind of rejected it. The, the leaders especially have bald face just rejected and said, you're not. And they went one step further. They actually committed the unpardonable sin, which is when you attribute to the works of God to the power of Satan. And Jesus was doing the works of God, casting out demons, healing people in the name of God. And the Pharisees said, you do that by the power of Beelzebub. It's an unpardonable sin. And because they did that, 
the earthly kingdom that Jesus would establish would not be established at that period of time. It would be postponed until the second coming. So there's this unique era of time between the first coming and the second coming. When Jesus begins speaking about it, he calls this period of time a mystery kingdom. Look with me on the screen at Matthew 13, 11, the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. This is now. This is when you live. This time period, it's called the church age. It's unlike anything prior to Jesus. It's unlike anything after the second coming. Because you get a unique privilege during this period of time. You get to represent the King of Kings before a world who doesn't understand grace, and you get to model it every day. You get to wear grace and say, I received it, you can too. That's what this parable is about. This is where Jesus is going with this. So step back with me to the first century. It's a setting in a unique day in Matthew 13 in which Jesus is telling one parable right after another. And he's sitting in a boat to do it. Look with me up on the screen at verse 1, Matthew 13, or maybe cast your eyes in your Bible to verse 1. We'll be to verse 31 in just a minute. That day, Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. And large crowds gathered to him. So he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd was standing on the beach. Just to catch you up, that, that day is a really busy day. It's not only the day that the Pharisees have rejected him and said, no, the nation has said by its leadership, you're doing this by the power of Satan. But that particular day, he's been casting out demons and he's been healing diseases. And now he finds himself headed to the beach and a lot of people are following, so many people that they have to find space on the seashore. So Jesus takes a seat in the boat because even though the leadership has turned their back on him, He's really, really popular with all the people. So you see in verse 2, it said, the large crowds gathered to him. And now this hush falls over the crowd. And they begin hearing him tell one parable after another. And he starts with the parable of the soils. You heard that in early January. Then he moved to the parable of the sowers, the one casting the seed. And last time we were together, he talked about the parable of the wheat and the tares. And all that's left the disciples with questions in their mind. Now he goes to another parable, and he picks up the agricultural theme again. Go with me to verse 31. He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is, the small, this is smaller than all other seeds, but when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches." He spoke another parable to them, verse 33, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. All these things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables, and he did not speak to them without a parable. You notice as you read that, there's no explanation given. He doesn't take time and say, now here's what it means. He just begins speaking of small beginnings, of small things becoming big things, and there's no indication of where it's going. So he's left you and I to discern and to puzzle a little bit and put the pieces together to make sure we understand that. Together, these two parables of the mustard seed and the leaven, they're illustrating very typical male-female responsibilities. A man working the soil, putting the seed in the garden, a woman working in the kitchen, putting the bread together and, and raising bread for her family, very typical daily chores in the first century. So Jesus is relating to women as well as men who are sitting on the beach in front of him in that crowd. 
And in the midst of it, what he's doing is he's reminding us that his purposes will triumph. Why do I say that? Well, because after hearing the parables of the soils, after hearing the parable of the sower and the tares, the disciples likely are wondering, how in the world can this kingdom that you're talking about ever survive if out of the four soils only one of them receives the seed? If in the midst of the wheat, the tares spring up, how in the world is this going to be successful? Remember, the disciples, they're just a handful. It's just a handful against an entire nation. If they were here today, they wouldn't need to be in the auditorium. They could go to the quad. They wouldn't even need the quad gathering room. You could break it down into one of the small quarter quarter sections. It's just a little group of people against an entire nation, not to mention the vast Roman Empire. So these parables that Jesus is sharing this morning, these are spoken as a caution against a defeatism attitude. So I have to ask you this morning, are are you there? Do you have that sense that you're the only one, that maybe in the office there's no other believers but you? Maybe in your school, are you, you walking the hallways thinking, and I'm in this on my own. In your neighborhood, are you wondering if you're the only Christ follower, let alone some of you are wondering if you're the only one in your house, that that's where the disciples are at. They feel like they're the only one, the only one in the office, the only one in the school. It's pretty hard to move forward when you think that you're the only one and that no one has your back. Jesus uses these two parables to really encourage you, and I hope you're encouraged this morning, because he's emphasizing that the smallest things, when they're in his hands, have enormous impact. That's what you're going to see coming out of this. So bear down with me on verse 31 when he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. How is that, Jesus? It's a really simple illustration. It's so simple that Jesus says it's just like a tiny little mustard seed that's been sown into the soil. But everyone listening to him on the beach that day, they would get it. He's saying this kingdom, this mystery age that is coming, it's just like a seed that's going to turn into a big tree. It's really unique in its makeup. Now, Jesus, mind you, is not speaking like a biologist here. He's speaking in the frame of natural, normal occurrences in the Middle Eastern agriculture. I'll tell you why I say that in just a minute. Do you remember when we started the parables, I said a parable is taking a spiritual reality and laying it alongside a physical reality? Well, this is exactly what Jesus is doing. He's taking a spiritual reality, laying it alongside a physical reality, and he begins talking agriculturally. Mustard seeds, mustard plants is a really common part of ancient farming in the Middle East. Everybody knew exactly what that was, but it's not the smallest seed in the world. I'm going to help you understand why I say that. There's some that are smaller. The the distinction of the smallest seed in the world actually belongs to a wild orchid in South America. Understand the way that Jesus is speaking of this. Because of its really tiny size in the Middle East, it became proverbial for something small. And the people on the beach that day, they got it. They're familiar with it. A mustard seed is just the size of a grain of sand. So picture yourself standing on a beach shore, and you see the grains of sand, and that's how tiny a mustard seed. It's no bigger than that. 
It's used in other illustrations throughout the Bible. Here's one you'll be really familiar with. Look with me on the screen, Matthew 17, 20. Truly, I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed. See, Jesus is just pulling in a proverb that's very familiar to the people at that time. He's appealing to this well-known thought. Why am I driving that point home? Because throughout history, individuals who are critics of the Bible use that particular verse to say, see, Jesus was either a liar or he doesn't know what he's talking about because it's not the smallest seed on the planet. Well, that's not the way that he's using it. He's using it in a parable, in a a proverb in the Middle East. He's, He's not a liar and he's not making a mistake. He's not comparing this seed to all the other seeds in existence, only to the gardens in Palestine, what those individuals would understand. Now, that's all just aside for free, just so you understand that part, right? Here's where the greatness of this parable really speaks to you. This is where it speaks to their lives. Proportionately, there is no other seed on planet Earth that is so tiny, that yields so large of a final product, that it becomes something that is so big, it is actually a 12-foot bush when it's fully grown. Many of them are in the range of 8 to 10 feet. The biggest ones become 12 feet, and they're 6 feet wide in diameter. Now, let's speak about botany here for just a moment. Let's speak about something that we know just from modern information. The proportions of reproduction within a modern mustard tree plant or an ancient mustard tree plant are absolutely staggering. How many times might that one little grain of sand-sized seed reproduce in something that is six feet wide by 12 feet high and it all came from that tiny little seed. Well, millions and millions of times it's reproduced in what Jesus calls sperma form. Sperma is the ancient Greek word for the the thing that produces growth. So in sperma form, that one little seed explodes and becomes something massive. And what Jesus is saying is the mystery of this kingdom, part of it during the church age, it's like this tiny seed. It's going to be explosive. Now, here's the really, really hard thing about that. If you're on the beach that day and you're one of the followers of Jesus, you can't picture it because they don't see what you and I see. They don't live in 2020. They don't see what we see today. Today, we see the results of explosive growth of the church of Christ. Entire nations have been established on Judeo-Christian values, on the principles of the work of Christ. Who could see that coming? Well, Jesus. He could see that coming because he's God, right? And this is extraordinary and it's stunning and you should be reading it that way. Process how that reality applies to your life this morning. The truth of the gospel is is just so tiny, such a microcosm. It perhaps happened in your life when you gave your life to Christ. Some friend, some trusted individual, maybe a teacher, just said the phrase, you could be forgiven of your sins. And it started out in such seed form, such small form, just a microcosm, and it's exploded within your life, producing a Christ follower This is the thing that Jesus is driving here. He's saying, hold on, you're part of something that's massive, something bigger than what you understand, and it's victorious. You really don't understand what's in store for you, and there's a huge life lesson in the midst of this principle for us. 
Because today, you and I, we listen to the Word of God, and we read it, and we process it confidently, and we process it humbly, and hopefully, we process it with anticipation that what we're part of is leading to something that's magnificent. God has committed to you, just like he committed to the people on the beach that day, he's committed realities to you that you can't yet see. You haven't yet experienced, but you can have confidence it's going to come to pass. So what Jesus is doing is he's prophesying here, and it's a prophecy of triumphant growth, saying you're part of something that you just don't quite understand. The church is growing to grow, and it grows throughout history, and that's why he could say the gates of hell will not prevail against it. My kingdom's going to go forward, so just hold on, just be patient, because ultimately it's going to culminate in a kingdom that is millennial in nature after my second coming, when I physically will rule over all the world. I especially like the part that he included about the birds nesting in the tree. If you've got your Bible open, look at that, or, or you'll see part of it up on the screen here, just part of verse 32. The birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Uh, maybe you've heard this interpreted before by other individuals um, that is different than what I'm going to explain to you, but this is the way I understand it. The birds of the air that it's talking about are the nations of the earth, and I base that on Ezekiel 17. Ezekiel 17 is a prophetic passage. It was written hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus, and God told Ezekiel to write down some things that would be characteristic of the Messiah. That would be true of when he came, that God was going to do a mighty work. And so we find in Ezekiel 17, verse 23, making a statement identical to what Jesus is saying here. Look with me on the screen at this. On the high mountain of Israel I will plant it, that it may bring, bring forth boughs and bear fruit and become a stately cedar, and birds of every kind will nest under it. They will nest in the shade of its branches. All the trees of the field will know that I am the Lord. I bring down the high tree, exalt the low tree, dry up the green tree, and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will perform it. See, what Jesus has done is he's taken this Old Testament imagery of a prophecy that's hundreds of years old, and he's brought it forward into this parable, which is characteristic of Christ. And he says to the individuals, you've got to put the pieces together. They know that prophecy. They know that from Ezekiel 17. In other words, what he's saying is this is going to expand and the nations of the planet are going to be drawn into it and they're going to be part of it. And this is absolutely staggering. When you think of just a handful of individuals that could easily fit in one of our quad sections, being told that they're going to be part of something, that all the nations of this entire globe are going to be drawn into. You talk about vision. That's vision. That's God saying, this is what's going to happen. People credit me a lot with the growth of this church and what's going on. They, they completely miss it when they do that. That's God's vision. God's vision. It's God's purposes that our church would grow. It's God's vision that things would be blessed because he said, when a church is teaching my word, it's, go, it's going to grow. This is what's going to happen. It's going to be explosive. With the kingdom of heaven, this great mystery kingdom that you're part of, just like New Hope, would grow from tiny, humble beginnings. God says this kingdom that you're part of, this mystery kingdom, it grows to be something like a great tree. And ultimately, it would provide shelter and benefit to the entire world. What do you think of when you think of a tree? A seed growing into a tree, it provides, in the Middle East, leaves. 
Well, the leaves would give the birds rest from the heat. They could nest in its branches, Jesus said. What is that? Well, that's blessing. That's a place for them to rest. I, I found this to be true as you sur- survey the nations of this planet. I, I think you'll be tr- thinking this is true when you think about it. It's from the teachings of Scripture. We understand from the teachings of Scripture that education has sprung up on this planet and justice and human rights and the dignity of women and the rights of children and the establishment of universities and prison reform and the establishment of hospitals. Countless social benefits have sprung forth from the teachings and the principles of Christ because when the kingdom, when the gospel of the kingdom is faithfully practiced, The entire world benefits. Say amen if you agree with that. It's true. These Judeo-Christian values that our nation has been established on, this, this nation alone, just the United States, has been a blessing to the entire world because it was founded on the principles of Christ. Well, that's true if you look at Europe. That's true if you look at Africa. Wherever the nations have embraced the gospel, where they have embraced the teachings of Christ, There's been a reaction there, and it's been a blessing to the planet. Now, Jesus goes into the next parable really quickly. Each one of these are very fast. Verse 33 is just as quick. He spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. Now, in the Bible, as you read about leaven, you can see that leaven can represent three things. It can be neutral. Or it can represent something evil, or it can represent something good, depending on the context of how it's used. Especially if you go to the book of Leviticus, the use of leaven refers to something good and good purposes. Well, that's the way that Jesus is using it here. The primary analogy actually pertains to the characteristic of leaven. In other words, the characteristic that it's a persistent influence. That is the most distinctive characteristic of leaven, or what we would think of in modern-day terms, yeast. Now, take that forward into this explanation. When a young woman in the first century became engaged and she was about to be married, on her wedding day, her mother would break off a piece of dough from the family's bread production. She would wrap it in cloth, and on the day of her wedding, her mother would entrust her with that piece of leavened dough, the piece that would be set aside for her purposes. It became the most precious gift that was given to young brides, not only because it came from the bread that her mother was making that very day on the day of her wedding for her own celebration, but also because it became a representation of what was established in her household as a girl as she was raised that her mother would take from her own storehouse of leaven and pass on to her that she could begin producing bread for her family and for her husband, and she would continue on this pattern, and it became a very precious gift to them. Stay with me on this thought. Remember, Jesus is constructing these parables out of common, everyday experiences. In the first century, bread is baked daily, and you didn't go to a baker's shop to pick it up. It was baked in your own house and it smelled wonderful. I don't know how many of you were raised in homes where your mom baked bread on a regular basis, but I was. And and man, there's nothing like that. That'll permeate the entire house. I loved coming home and smelling my mom's fresh baked bread. 
Well, in the ancient world, it was baked on a daily basis, not from baker's shops, and the leaven from last week's dough would be carried over and put in the dough that would produce the bread of that week. Now, here's what Jesus is speaking of. He's talking about this woman who's taking this bread, this flour, and putting in her piece of leaven, and he says, into three measures of flour. Now, that's really unusual. Because typically, they would be baking a small amount, just enough for her and her husband, or perhaps if they had children by that point, or maybe if they had guests over their house, but they wouldn't need three pecks of flour. But Jesus says she takes just a small amount of the leavening, and she puts it into the flour, three pecks, and it completely transformed this large quantity of dough. So just like with the previous parable with the seed, he's bringing out this continuity that with something so tiny, it produces so much change and the culmination of it is enormous in the end. Now, this small piece of leaven normally was used to feed only the married couple, as I said, or only a small family. But Jesus says she put it in three pecks and three pecks will feed over a hundred people. Now, the disciples are hearing this. They're sitting on the beach with everybody else that's in the crowd, and they're hearing Jesus give this demonstration of a parable. And this group of disciples are being told they're not too insignificant to be noticed. They're not too small. They might feel like it. They might feel like they're the only one in the office. But just as surely as the leaven goes into the flour and it explodes the dough just as surely as the seed goes into the soil and a massive tree comes out of it, the tiniest part of the kingdom of God, and you might consider yourself there this morning. Maybe you think you're the smallest little mustard seed God ever made. God's saying, I'll take that tiniest little mustard seed, and when you live out your life faithfully in my word, it's going to have influence. It's going to have so much influence, it's going it's to be Formidable because it contains the power of the Holy Spirit within it. God's own spirit has been placed within you. And that's where the power comes from. And Jesus ends it very abruptly with verse 34. And you've noticed there's been no explanation of it by him. Verse 34. All these things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables. And he did not speak to them without a parable. Now the disciples have reason to be discouraged. They have reason to be perplexed about the prospects of this kingdom. Daily at this point, they're encountering opposition after opposition. Jesus' own life is receiving severe threats. They know the nation is stacked against them, and they know that they're unprepared to do anything to win the world. If Jesus would be rejected, let alone executed, and they don't even know that's coming yet, what would happen? What would happen to this small band of followers who feel so insignificant as though they can't possibly accomplish anything even after he's gone? God's activities are marked by humble beginnings. God starts with the smallest things, a barn, a manger, a baby in a cradle, the humblest of beginnings the birth of a Savior. See, what Jesus is helping you see this morning is that outward appearances count for very, very little in the kingdom of God. It's not about outward appearances. In contrast, it's the power of God working through humble instruments. He produces great things through you. 
because of the influence of the power of the kingdom. What I want you to see in this is that humility does not mean insignificance. Small beginnings doesn't mean that God won't do something magnificent with it. I want you to hear a modern day illustration of this. In North Korea right now, it's estimated that perhaps 1.7% of the population is Christian. Maybe. You can't do any surveys there. You can't take a poll. So those who have worked there, those who have snuck into the country, those who have snuck out, they give reports. Some news reporters have been allowed access. And a news report came out recently that demonstrated this by the very small population that it represents. By identifying two churches, secret churches in North Korea. Each one is made up of four people. Four people in one, four people in the other. And to meet, they have to plan secretly. They hide whatever copy of the Bible they have because if they're caught, they'll not only be imprisoned, they'll be tortured and then they'll be executed. How discouraging would it be were it not for a parable like this to think, what effect could they possibly have? Eight people? How could they have any impact? But yet Jesus is saying, in my power, in my hands, you're like a mustard seed going into the soil. It'd be explosive when I work through you. When you're obedient to my word, when you share the gospel. Those churches are a great example of the beginnings, just like the mustard seed here. Microscopic as yeast. But God says, hold on and be encouraged. When the kingdom is reflected in the lives of believers... The influence is both pervasive, just like the yeast going into the dough, and it's positive. The life of Christ in believers is a leavening in the world. God says, I'll work through if you just allow me to do that. You don't have to be a national leader. You don't have to be a sports figure. You don't have to be an entertainer. Just be a simple individual who's an influencer in your office, in your neighborhood, in your school, You don't have to be famous to do this. It's the power of God's kingdom that's working within a believer that makes your witness effective. It's the Holy Spirit, in other words, doing the work. Do you agree with that? That's right, because if it was dependent upon us, it wouldn't succeed. That's why Jesus told the disciples, just hang on. Even after I'm gone, just hang on 30 days. Wait for the arrival of the Holy Spirit. You need the power of the Spirit working through you. So let me sum it up for you this way. I'm thinking the disciples were losing sleep. They got the hostility of the nation's leaders against them. Rome is stacked against them. And Jesus certainly wasn't the military leader or the political leader that they were expecting him to be. And by they, I mean the people of the nation. He didn't turn out to be what they thought he should be. I find it really significant that the expansion that Jesus is talking about for his kingdom here is not a military takeover and it's not a political takeover, even though that was what was anticipated by people. He doesn't capture lands and he doesn't capture seats of power, yet this same kingdom conquers the entire world because the change that our king causes, it happens within, it happens inside where he takes territory of your soul. He takes the seat of your heart. He possesses that territory, an unseen region. He takes spiritual territory from an unseen enemy, and he rescues the soul of sinners while he does that. Amen? That's his goal. That's his purposes. 
Charles Simeon summed it up really well. I, I want you to see his quote. It's in your notes if you haven't already read it, but let me put it up on the screen for you as well. It says this, Leaven changes not the substance of the meal in which it is hid, but materially alters its qualities. It so impregnates the meal as to transform it into its own likeness. Thus does the gospel affect those who receive it into their hearts. It makes us partakers of a divine nature. Well, in an immeasurably greater way than bread or seeds in the garden, God demonstrates his power through the church through just a handful of believers who independently on their own are weak. But through his power, he would change the course of the planet. So this kingdom, having just a very small beginning, just a baby in a manger, one day will cause the population of this entire globe, all those who lived in times ancient past, all those who live now, and all those who will live in eternity, every single knee, Scripture says, will bow their knee to the name of Jesus. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That means from Genghis Khan to Alexander the Great to Napoleon to Henry Ford to Muhammad, every single person will bow the knee, some willingly and some unwillingly. And in the end, Revelation 11.15 is true. Look with me on the screen. The kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for every single person who's in the auditorium today. I don't know how you use this to encourage, but I know that you do. Remind us again when we step into the office tomorrow or into school or into our home or in our neighborhood that you have our back, and we are part of something much, much larger than we understand. And you, throughout the ages, have continued to do your work, and you will until the very end. For that, we give you praise and honor that this church is part of the kingdom, and we get to arise and proclaim your glory. God, I thank you for this reality. In Jesus' matchless name, and all God's people said, Amen.